Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. I'm Hadia Rodrique. I'm Ryan McMahon. I'm Ashley Chinati. Less awkward than a Kelly Leach video, it's Canada Land Commons. Today's show, we're going to talk about the recent Thunder Bay inquest into the deaths of seven Indigenous youth. We'll also tackle the infamous taxi driver sexual assault case out of Nova Scotia, taking a look at judges and consent and what that means for Canada going forward. We're also going to take a quick look at the brewing political finance scandal out of BC. Canada Land Commons is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Wealth Simple, who provides simple and easy investing for your future. This past week, the city of Thunder Bay uh, City Council met to discuss the findings of the jury recommendations into the inquest of seven youth deaths in the city of Thunder Bay over the last handful of years. And uh, the results of that meeting uh, were made public, and uh, uh, we'll hear some of the tape uh, from that from the floor of the city council chambers now. We have to take the recommendations very seriously. During the inquests, I'm not sure if, if any of you came to sit in that courtroom. And I don't remember seeing any of you there. Normally, uh, or I would almost say always, when there is a legal question, we receive um, advice from staff to not participate and not comment, to not take part in the proceedings. While I think from a legal perspective that was probably good advice, I don't think it was good advice in terms of 
how our absence was perceived. The chief spoke about us not being there. And I'm afraid, and I'm ashamed of myself for being afraid of not going. And I watched from the sidelines. I think what's really important uh, to note here is that students from the Anishinaabe Aski Nation territory, that is northern Ontario, leave their community to attend high school. And if they want to attend high school, they have to do so uh, in this way. They fly in, and some of them are housed with uh, apartments and different um, uh, living quarters that are arranged by their community via the Anishinaabe Aski Nation. Others do so independently. Their families open up a couch or a bedroom to them. Uh, But what's important to mention is that uh, much like in the era of residential school, they have to leave their community to attend school. There have been a number of tragic deaths, and I'll read you the names of the seven young people that died in Thunder Bay uh, while attending high school, whose names are attached to the inquest here. Paul Panachis, who was 21, from uh, Mishkigogaming, uh, First Nation. Robin Harper, 18, from Kiwewin, First Nation. Jethro Anderson, 15, from Kaspanika Lake, First Nation. Curran Strange, 18, from Pekanjikum, First Nation. Reggie Bushy, 15, Poplar Hill, First Nation. Kyle Morso, 17, Kiwewin, First Nation. And Jordan Wabas, 15, from Webequay, First Nation. There have been a number of deaths that brought us to the place where it was time to call an inquest, and through uh, close to a decade of fighting, the uh, inquest was finally called, and uh, the city of Thunder Bay is now set to implement all of the recommendations, which is is massive news. And what I find so shocking about this story is that it is massive news, but we've had so little and such sparse coverage of it. I One of the main reporters on the ground there who I follow on Twitter, uh, Jody Porter for CBC, her handle's at CBC Reporter. She has been doing an amazing job of telling this story for years now. And as much as I feel like I've been following along with this inquest, when I started doing the research for this today, I was mad at myself for how little I knew. I mean, these kids... A large majority of them are are falling into or being pushed into this river in Thunder Bay and and dying. And if there was if there were kids falling into the Don River in Toronto or falling off the waterfront in Vancouver on a regular basis to the point that there's a coroner's inquest, this would be front page news for months at a time, not a toss off article here or there with yet another report with the same recommendations we've heard over and over again about improving access to support, about addressing the core issues of poverty, about the fact that the different jurisdictions from cities to different jurisdictions need to work together. That's right. And this is, it's a constant jurisdictional battle. You brought up an important point, Ashley, about the, uh, about the river, much like any city or, or town, you know, there's places where kids convene. That's where they get together. It's where they hang out. And this river in this area where, where these deaths have happened, um, it's kind of one of those uh, areas where there's like shortcuts to go home across the city. And uh, that's what we're finding here. And one of the concerns in the city of Thunder Bay is, you know, there are areas much like many cities where, you know, you kind of go to the native part of town to cause trouble. And that's kind of one of the things 
things that a lot of the young people talk about is how they live in these certain areas and they know that once they go into these territories in the cities, they're going to get picked on. And and just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a woman was walking down the street at two in the morning and a trailer hitch was thrown out of a moving car and hit her. And she, you know, had to have life-saving surgery in the city of Thunder Bay. And so these kids are taking these trails and hanging out in sort of the the back areas of Thunder Bay because walking down the street isn't safe for them either. And I think that that's a really important point. These kids, whether whether they're walking down Main Street or whether they're walking on the trails uh, falling into the river, it's clear that in the city of Thunder Bay, you know, young brown kids just aren't safe. I mean, if this was happening at the Don River and seven kids had fallen into the river, people would be, you know, pitchforks and knives out to like build a wall around the river so no one else could fall in. Um, but one thing I found really disturbing about this is that some of the recommendations and the 30, 31 recommendations um, passed by council almost exactly repeat recommendations that were made 20 years ago um, into the death of a teenager, a First Nations teenager in the exact same area. The recommendation on poverty said that the government in 1999 said that the government of Canada and Ontario should address the poverty issues that exist within the First Nation communities, such as inadequate housing and unemployment. The 2016 recommendation says Canada should develop an anti-poverty strategy for NAN First Nations community members and to assist individual First Nations in creating economic opportunity that emphasizes self-reliance, local control and the relationship between the people on the land. This is not news, but it seems like we have all these terrible things have to happen before anyone does anything about it. And what's so disturbing is so many of these kids, this the seven that were included in, in this inquiry, their deaths, they'd fallen in the river, were ruled as undetermined or accidental. And then the inquest actually found that a number of them, uh, they, they've now sort of prompted a reopening of a couple of the cases by police. But there's also a big condemnation of how the police handled these cases in that report. And now we're seeing them criminalize the youth by increasing the presence of police in these areas where the kids are hanging out ostensibly to protect them. But for some reason, I don't have much faith that this isn't going to turn in to these kids just being, you know, told to disperse by police as opposed to actually there being some action to protect the kids on the ground. But it's so disheartening to hear like those tears from that city councillor who says she was too scared to go to this inquest, like what too scared to confront the the realities of what's going on in your city and she's the she's the young member of council her name's shelby chung she was the only member of thunder bay city council who was a new face after the last round of municipal elections in ontario so she's supposed to be the young new blood you know who might be more reflective and a, a sign of generational change and yet she's too i think she might be genuine in that clip in her anger at herself but if you're crying because you're too scared to confront this horror, that says a lot about what's going on in your town. I think you bring up a really important point. You used two words there, Ashley, and I think Hadia was touching on it too. Uh, fear and and sort of that debilitating sense of knowing something's wrong, 
but not knowing what to do about it. Well, guess what? In the city of Thunder Bay, people have known something has been wrong since my parents used to leave the reserve and go there to drink in the 70s, okay? So this is a longstanding problem. We should understand the city of Thunder Bay a little bit too in terms of its geographical location. Now, this is what Sir John A. Macdonald called the Indian problem, but you will hear the Indian problem uttered at the mall in Thunder Bay. Native people from all over come to Thunder Bay to hit the Walmart, to do their grocery shopping, to come to appointments uh, for the doctor, bring their kids to the dentist and these types of things. So the city of Thunder Bay is a bit of a perfect storm. And I think it's really important for listeners to understand that people from the outlying territories, from the, from the neighboring reserves, come there to seek services and programs, but sometimes also a new life. And Hadia, you brought up uh, reports from 20 years ago. I think it's really important. Again, I said this last episode of the podcast, but to understand how everything's actually connected, truly connected, you can't separate underfunding of education or housing and kids falling in a river in Thunder Bay. They have to leave their community to go to school but really, their, their their community should have schools. That was the agreement through treaty. That's the deal with being a country. But many of these schools, or sorry, many of these First Nations don't have schools for these kids to go to. So I can tell you that these, these types of schools and this situation exists in Winnipeg. It exists in, in Saskatoon. It exists all over this country where young First Nations student, those most at risk. Now ask yourself... Would you send your teenager to a big city to attend high school on their own? I think most people listening to this podcast would say no. Yeah, no. And when people do, you know, it's like Tony boarding schools or something. And these kids aren't living in great conditions a lot of the time. Like it's supposed to be that they're housed with a family that wants them. But you, there are these, again, individual reports that trickle out of one of the, the youths who, uh, who, who was part of this inquest was living, had 10 different boarding houses he stayed in in the few short years he was in Thunder Bay. One of them was above a Chinese restaurant and it was essentially kids living like foot to head kind of thing and we don't look at these issues especially in the south where we can have the luxury of of not being confronted with it day to day and i think it's a failure of of our collective discourse and of our media to not be putting these issues in our faces this this inquest and its findings should have been as big a news as the truth and reconciliation commission report especially at least at the provincial level in ontario well and you know this goes to what what we say at the end of every inquest when we read every report or whenever we have a brand new commission it's like if we fix the problem once and we really address the systemic causes of these uh, inequities, we would be a better country. This place would be a better place for everyone. And pitter-pattering around the corners of the Indian Act and, and looking at how we can sort of go halfway with some of, uh, some of these fixes continues to take life. And I think that that's really a... Uh, it's a really difficult thing to say. I think we have to understand people are dying. You know, people, young people are dying. And if we keep tinker, tinkering around the edges, they're going to continue to I die. I would be curious about uh, what legal challenges or problems were predicted by attendance at the inquest and the hearings. You know, one would assume that the counselors want to have all the information at hand before making recommendations or decisions about 
uh, implementing the recommendations and having firsthand knowledge about actually attending the inquests, you would have think would have thought would lead to a more informed decision. And maybe, you know, people are okay with it because they implemented every recommendation, but what if they hadn't? And have they implemented them? I mean, voting to say, okay, we're going to implement these reports. Sure. The Liberals have said they're going to implement every uh, recommendation in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. I don't think we've seen very much progress on that. I'm skeptical that this will become the reality. And I think when you look at coroner's inquests, in general, I don't think there's something that politicians are expected to go to. It's a part of the the justice system that is intended to, to improve you know, with the reports at the end of the day. But I think when it's your city being singled out for being a problem where teenagers that are supposed to be in your care are are dying at this rate, the symbolism of attending is important. And this is more than just an inquest. This is racism. This is, you know, Indigenous issues. This is poverty. This is a whole host of issues that should be important to your community. You know, what if they, like so many others before them, had made a bad decision in in adopting the recommendations? Um, I would have thought the legal implications of not having all the information and not knowing the story um, would be greater. But, you know, I am a lawyer, but I am no expert in municipal and administrative law. Um, But if they attended, they might have gotten more of a sense of what it's like to be a First Nations person in Thunder Bay. You know, there were current and former students who testified at the inquest who shared stories about having racial slurs and food thrown at them from passing cars. And one former student told his story of being pushed into this very river um, by a group of strangers and having to swim for his life. This is likely something that may have happened to one of the seven uh, children. Well, and, and, you know, one thing that is fascinating out of all of this is that with an inquest, there are lawyers for many uh, parties withstanding. Right. And because there are so many lawyers representing so many different parties, what's really fascinating about this is that they, the lawyers for 11 parties withstanding at this inquest came together and presented this joint slate of 118 recommendations uh, to the jurors. And nine of them uh, were, were sort of highlighted as items that should they should not be argued regardless of cost and 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 time and energy that this may this may take the words fear kept coming up in this letter um, from these from this joint uh, group of lawyers do not allow fear of cost to lead you to reject recommendations that you'd feel would save lives says the lawyer for uh, the Mattawa Learning Center who is uh, one of the one of the groups that was uh, uh, investigated as being partially at fault in in falling short for delivering services to these young uh, indigenous people and these recommendations are bold uh, but they're fascinating and and it points the finger at Canada, it points the finger at the province, it points the finger at the city of Thunder Bay, and of note, it points the finger at Nishinaabe Aski Nation to say, look, you all have to get in the same room and this has to be figured out. And I think that there are no truer words today when we look at issues like this. We need all hands on deck, we need everybody on board, and uh, the time to fear each other should be well past. It should be well over. Um, but it, it's proof positive that in 2017, we still have uh, a lot of work to do. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are super excited to have Wealth Simple as our exclusive sponsor here at Canada Land Commons. I want to share a quick little story with you. I came into a little bit of money and I went into my local branch at my local bank and said I was interested in investing. By the time I left there, I questioned all of my career choices and wanted to hide that money in a mattress. Finding Wealth Simple was a breath of fresh air. Look, if you want an ethical portfolio, they offer that. They have something called socially responsible portfolio options. I think that's important. Also, they don't care how much money you put in. They want to make you an investor and believe in this service. And if you want to try it right now, go to wellsimple.com forward slash commons. Your first $10,000 is managed for free for two years. Look, if an everyday Joe stumbles upon Wellsimple on the internet... Their offer to that everyday Joe is the first $5,000 managed for free. Just by being a listener of this podcast, you get double that. So if you're curious and you just want to have a look, you don't have to invest anything right now. Just have a look. Wealthsimple.com forward slash commons. By doing so, you support the show. Thank you very much. Wealthsimple. Public anger continues to mount over a judge's decision to acquit a Halifax taxi driver of assaulting an intoxicated passenger. Judge Gregory Lenahan found Bassam Al-Rawi not guilty Wednesday following a two-day trial in February in Halifax Provincial Court. As of today, 33,000 people have signed a petition calling for a formal inquiry into Justice Gregory Lenahan's rulings. So, as many of you probably know, um, there was a recent decision by a Halifax judge um, in the case of a cab driver who was found with a passed out complainant at about 1.20 in the morning. He had his, her underwear in his hands. She had peed herself. She was passed out in the back of his cab. His pants were down. And this man was acquitted of sexual assault. And the judge and his comments have come under some recent fire, um, most notably for his really nice line that clearly drunks can consent, um, something that actually does not conform or comport with uh, Canadian law, at least not as the Supreme Court of Canada puts it. Um, there's a great article by Elizabeth Sheehy, who's a professor of law at the University of Toronto in the Globe and Mail, asking whether or not the judge did make a legal error when he found that although the complainant was found nearly naked and unconscious in the backseat of the taxi driver, a man that she had never met previously to getting into his cab 11 minutes prior, that she may have given her consent sometime prior to becoming unconscious. And so our code says that you cannot get voluntary agreement from anyone who's incapable of consenting. The code does not define what incapable of consenting means, but the judge was correct in stating that an unconscious woman is legally incapable of consent. He is correct that mere intoxication um, does not make one incapable of consent, but he's incorrect in stating clearly a drunk can consent. The law does not you know, draw a bright line, but there is no doubt that someone can be extremely drunk yet incapable of consenting. If you're slurring, you're puking, you can't 
put words together. You're stumbling. You are clearly someone who is not in a position to consent to sexual activity. So if you've peed yourself, you've probably hit the point where you are incapable of consenting to sexual activity. So I covered this for the post last week and got an audio recording of the judge's actual oral ruling. And I think it's really important to note that this was an oral ruling. If we hadn't had local reporters in there on the ground because the the publicity around it, because he was a taxi driver, drove them to be there, we wouldn't know about this verdict. And we have verdicts like this that you hear about from sexual assault centers and stuff all the time, but only a handful of them bubble up to the top because they happen to be one where there's a reporter there or the Crown appeals. Now, in this case, we don't yet know whether the prosecution is going to appeal. They're still making that determination. They have like 30 days. They're still weighing that. But it sounds like from the legal basis of what the Supreme Court has said on consent that they have a pretty strong case. And I actually listening to this recording last week when I was done transcribing it, we put the full transcription up. So if people are curious about the full context, you can you can check that out. Um, I actually had to like get up and go for a walk because the judge's inflection in his voice when he says a drunk and there's this judgmental vitriol in his voice when he's talking about how intoxicated she is, um, that she got in fights with her friends before she got in the cab. And basically said, well, we can't reasonably know, talks about how when you drink, your inhibitions are are loosened. And we don't know that she might not have consented to the activity in that 11 minute span before the police officer, a police officer found her passed out in the back of the cab. And so you have a police officer as a witness. You have her DNA on his upper lip, which the judge dismissed as something he could have absentmindedly brushed there because he was holding her urine-soaked tights and underwear. And that's where the rage and uh, me just like I know I'm sitting here it's like building and at some point he has this reasonable doubt that she was capable of providing consent when she was that intoxicated in an 11 minute period. It's not like she was in his cab for 45 minutes and those last three shots she took at the bar hit her in those 45 minutes it in in your level of intoxication does not change that quickly in nine to 11 minutes in the back seat of a cab it just doesn't work like that you just don't go from being sober enough to consent to something to being passed out and pissing yourself in 11 minutes and there was no sign that she had peed herself in the cab she probably had before she got in which is a sign she was probably too drunk to consent when she got in and a big part of his judgment was saying the crown failed to prove that she didn't provide consent. Now, how do you prove a negative in that case beyond showing how drunk she was? One thing that this brings up for me is it highlights the need, the ever-pressing need for more understanding about sexual assault and a serious, serious need for us to clear up the misconceptions that are held by those responsible for processing and adjudicating sexual assault claims. On top of addressing the persistent rape myths that perpetuate our society. And by those responsible, I'm specifically referring to the police and the judiciary, but I want to focus on the judiciary right now. So this is a judge deciding a sexual assault case on consent and on consent and intoxication who did not mention or cite the leading courts holding on consent when incapacitated. 
you know, I spent 10 minutes on Canly, which is a repository of publicly available cases. And, you know, I was able to find things like R.V. Haraldson, um, where the Alberta Court of Appeals stated that the capacity consent requires more than simply baseline physical conditions. R.V. Faulkner, where in 1997, it was held that while alcohol may vitiate consent, um, this is often best established by way of expert evidence. And nevertheless, expert evidence is not necessary to vitiate consent on the grounds of intoxication as a matter of law. So the fact that this all happened within an 11-minute period um, should have made it clear that consent was not uh, a factor in this case. And when even the judges who are making these decisions don't know the law, like what hope do we have for regular people who are not familiar with, with sexual assault law, who are not familiar with the criminal code? And this is a judge who was a Crown prosecutor. Again, his name is... Justice Gregory Lenahan, and he was a Crown prosecutor for 20 years in Nova Scotia. He's a provincial appointee. But I think this just highlights the need for us to have some sort of reformer. Either we have, like we have mental health courts or we have diversion courts for other issues, that perhaps we really do need a specialized court system for sexual assault case law where where the, the Crowns are specialized, where the judges are specialized or have some kind of specialized training. And conservative, or interim conservative leader, Rona Ambrose has a great private members bill right now so that all federal judges uh, before they're appointed would have to have some kind of sexual assault law training. But that actually wouldn't help in this case because this is a provincial appointee. The only thing it would help is she would make that big decision, as I was saying off the top, the oral versus written judgments is a big deal. When judges decide sexual assault cases and just render an oral verdict, if there's no one in that courtroom who's a reporter or someone who's going to make the results public or there's no appeal by the crown, we don't hear of cases like this where the law isn't being applied properly way too often. Shout out to, uh, this is probably the first time and only time I'll ever say this, but shout out to Rona Ambrose. I think it's highly dependent on the level of court and um, the training. For example, you might have someone who practiced employment law for 10 years who then gets called to the bench and they have to now decide criminal cases, you know, cases involving corporate litigation, like things that they may have never practiced in. And it's, you know, you don't know everything as a lawyer. I know I certainly don't. I know one very narrow slice of law. And but you ask me things about things outside of that and I've got to go look it up. I've got to go look in a book. And if you don't have a clerk or you don't have other people doing this research, you have to get up to speed on an entire area of law that you might know might not know. Um and then be expected to render a decision on it. And so, you know, one thing maybe we could do is put people into the areas in which they practiced or make have people do courses before they can practice a certain, decide on certain types of cases. Um, one thing I find really fascinating, and, you know, to use the words of Justin Trudeau, it's 2017. We have limitless, basically limitless hard drives. We have phones that can record anything you say. How are we not recording Oral judgments. So this one was recorded, but and that's how I managed to get it. But the problem is you can't broadcast it. Legally, you can't broadcast proceedings of a court in Canada. There's a huge raging debate about privacy and justice and access to justice and whether we should do that. And personally, I, I, as a journalist, lean towards, you know, transparency of let's put cameras in the courtroom. But then you see the circus in the States and you're like, do we want that? So I, I, I get both sides of that 
argument. But I think in this case, I think that simple fix of if we have if we make a change to the criminal code where all verdicts, whether they're summary judgments in a provincial court or something in a federal court for sexual assault convictions for charges laid under the criminal code have to be rendered in written format, then that helps, then we do have to see better reasoning. Then judges do have to cite their sources more. You can record the judgments and transcribe them. No one's saying you have to put up the audio on some sort of government website. Judges should be, A, they probably should have notes if they're rendering an oral verdict. So if they have notes, why can't they do? Why Why is this not being posted online? Yeah. yeah. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out is that mistakes made by judges in the domain of sexual assault is nothing new. This has been happening for a long time. Um, So when I was in law school, I did a project on the defense of the honest but mistaken belief in consent. So this is where the circumstances would be ambiguous, such that a reasonable person could have mistakenly thought that they did have consent to engage in the sexual activity. If you have an accused and a victim, it's where the accused must prove that he, I'm going to use he because it's usually a he, um, had an honestly held belief in consent, and they must prove that they took reasonable steps to ascertain consent or make sure that their partner agreed to consent in the sexual activity, as any reasonable human should do. Um, In other words, they must demonstrate that they thought that their partner really said yes through words, actions, or both, and that they did what was necessary to make sure that their partner consented. Um, So what I did, uh, the the Court of Appeal has set out various steps that you use to show whether or not you can use this offense. First, there has to be, the judge has to determine that there's an error of reality to defense, and then the accused has to show that they did take reasonable steps and that there was still ambiguity in terms of consent, that you could read it as yes or no. So I reviewed about 50 cases between 2000 and 2005 where this defense was used. And my recollection, two, all but two or three judges misapplied the law. <laughs> 47 out of 50 so judges. And that's just the written judgments. And so, again, so how many oral judgments was that law misapplied in? How many oral judgments has a judge said, well, we have reasonable doubt to know whether she consented before she passed out? Like, that is that is bonkers that this is still happening in 2017. It Just like the last conversation we were having about the Thunder Bay recommendations about the youth in that city, it's we've heard this all before. We've been here before. There were reviews in the 70s, there were reviews in the 80s, there were reviews in the 90s. We haven't had a substantial overhaul or inquiry or parliamentary sort of dive into our sexual assault law in this country in over two decades. And it's something that the Trudeau Liberals have promised. It's something that we're hearing they're working on behind closed doors with advocates. We're hearing a little bit of a trickle of dissent from some sexual assault advocacy groups about what that's going to look like. But why can't we have a big public hearing a committee, you know, struck to actually sit and talk about and dig into these issues and how we can reform the system in a way that maintains our adversarial justice system, but gets us to a point where we don't have massive global mail investigations. S- sorry, sorry. I, I just want to say um, two things. There's a reason why I'm not talking. I think it's really important. Uh, that I'm listening, you know, so I don't know if this, this probably doesn't belong in the recording, but I just want to say what was really bothersome for me is um, 
the insinuation through the judge's uh, ruling, uh, that tone that you're talking about, Ashley, again, puts the onus back on the woman in this situation. And I just think that that if this, if, if, if really after in this country, after we've seen Gomeshi, after we've seen so many other cases, throw this back on the woman because she went out for drinks, then this is a country that I don't want to live in. And I know I'm like the line in the sand guy and I did this last episode and I'll probably do it every episode, but that's not the country I want to live in, man. Like, And so this again goes back and I, 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 I've been thinking more about this in terms of my own participation in this podcast. I really want to call on listeners and Canadians to continue this discourse because we create the political will. We create the change that we want to see in this country. And I think it's really important that we get as loud as we can to stand in the face of these types of judgments and say, no, that that's not good enough for, for the country that we want to create, the country that I want my daughters to, to grow up. Uh, safe in, it's not good enough. You bring up a really good point about the onus we place on the victim. And too often we place the onus on the victim to prove that she said no, when really, in my opinion, should be placing the onus on the accused to show that he got a clear yes. So today is the day of outrage. We're trying to get you guys. This wasn't intentional. I think it just sort of happened this way. We're trying to get our listeners outraged about different things. And if you're in BC and you care about political transparency and fundraising in your province, please listen up. And frankly, if you're a Canadian and you care about this, please listen up. Because we've heard a lot about cash for access fundraisers across the country in Ontario, Alberta, in Ottawa over the past year. But in British Columbia, this problem is so rampant that there was a mass of Global Mail investigation on the weekend that found lobbyists are actually buying tickets to fundraisers for their clients and then their clients are reimbursing them through accounting tricks so that it doesn't appear that these lobbyists are giving these kickbacks to these parties or sorry that the clients are giving these kickbacks to these parties but BC has no campaign contribution limit there's you can literally give whether you're a Canadian citizen or not whether you live in BC or not you can give any amount of money to a BC political party that you want. And this is a thing that has been going on for years. It's going to be going on when the election starts in that province in May. And there are moves to potentially tinker around with the rules, but it doesn't sound like a hard cap on donations is going to be part of them. And that is bonkers. The BC Liberals in 2016 raised $12.6 million. That's double what the Ontario Liberals did. Look at the size of those two provinces in population and economy, and two thirds of what the federal party did. This is outrageous. Elections BC announced on Monday that they will be looking into the issue that was raised by the Globe. This is going to be a very pressing and important issue in the upcoming election that's happening in May and something that we'll be following closely over the next two weeks and hopefully talking some more about on our next episode. Well, that's our show for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. You can follow me on Twitter at D Rodrigue. That's D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. I'm Ryan McMahon. Follow me at RM Comedy. And I'm Ashley Chinati. Follow me at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L-E-Y, C-S-A-N-A-D-Y. Follow Canadaland Commons on Facebook and Twitter. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. 
Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. Thanks again to Commons' exclusive sponsor, Wealthsimple. Get your first $10,000 managed for free for two years at wealthsimple.com forward slash commons. If you like what we do, please support us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.